Welcome to Room 106. I'm Richard Garlick from Planning Magazine. And I'm Chris Caulfield, also from Planning Magazine. Every fortnight, usually, we enter Room 106, the black hole into which all new planning information is bunged, and extract the key things you need to know. However, we've had a short summer break, so this is the first episode since late June. Yes, I've been away for a couple of weeks, and I understand that there have been a few changes at the top of government in the meantime, which Chris has been covering. Certainly have. And making his Room 106 debut this week is our online editor, Toby Porter, who's been following the Tory leadership race. Welcome, Toby. Hello. Right, time to face the music and enter Room 106. Fair enough. See you in there. Well, it's as crammed as ever. It seems to be filling up constantly with column inches about the Tory leadership race. When we recorded our last podcast, Michael Gove was Secretary of State, Stuart Andrew was Housing Minister, but since then, almost the whole Department of Leveling Up ministerial team has changed. So, Chris, remind us what happened. Yes, Richard. Um, There's been a raft of ministerial resignations at the Department for Leveling Up Housing and Communities, DLUC, and the sacking of its Secretary of State. And this has all been wrapped around the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, announcing his own departure from Downing Street. So first, we had Stuart Andrew resigning as Housing Minister on the 6th of July. Later that day, Secretary of State Michael Gove was sacked for reportedly telling the Prime Minister that his time was up. Then this was swiftly followed the next day by the twin resignations of Ministers Kemi Badenoch and Neil O'Brien, as the Conservative MP protests about Boris Johnson continued to mount. And then, following the Prime Minister's own resignation, we had Lord Greenall announcing that he was stepping down from his building safety and fire portfolio. Greenall and the Prime Minister have a long history together. They worked together at the um, Mayor's office during Johnson's time in London. And that left the department with only two ministers uh, from the week before. And those were the ones covering homelessness and refugees. Right, yes, so almost a a complete clear out. So who's leading the department now? Well, since then, there's been a scramble to fill the void, uh, with Greg Clark being appointed on the 7th of July to replace Gove as the Secretary of State. Uh, And it's a role that Clark's returned to after a six-year gap. His appointment uh, was followed by Marcus Jones announcing on Twitter that he was replacing Stuart Andrew to become the 16th housing minister since 2005. And at the same time, the former minister for London, Paul Scully, uh, was also added to the team. And then later that day, uh, Grimsby MP Leah Niki. And it's all still very new. It took a while, but Jones was confirmed as the housing minister. But today, as we're recording, Scully still is enlisted uh, on the department's website as having a portfolio. Okay, so um, as you mentioned, this isn't the first time that Clark has been the Secretary of State with um, responsibility for planning. Tell us something about his history in the uh, in the sector. Well, Clark, having overseen the delivery of the Localism Act and the development of the first national planning policy framework 10 years ago, and having been a staunch supporter of devolving powers to local areas, Clark is no stranger to policy change. He served as Minister of State in the then Department for Communities and Local Government for Decentralization and Planning between 2010 and 2012. 
And during his tenure, he oversaw the development of the National Planning Policy Framework, which was published in final form March 2012, replacing a series of planning policy documents Clark also oversaw the introduction of the Localism Act in 2011, which gave communities the right to produce a neighborhood plan and introduced the duty to cooperate and abolished regional strategies. He then served as Minister for Cities in 2011 to 2012, where he initiated a program of city deals with England's biggest urban areas outside of London, aiming to devolve powers from Whitehall in an effort to boost growth. So he's very much about sort of sharing the power out. And he definitely has a track record. Uh, it just feels from talking to people, it's more a question about whether he can add to his track record. Okay, so a question of whether he's going to get the chance to, to do so. Yeah, there's a sort of a feeling amongst uh, certain commentators that it's these are sort of short-term positions, gap fillers, uh, until the new prime minister is elected or announced. But there was a positive reaction from the sector to Clark's renewed leadership of government planning functions. I spoke to Martin Curtis, the associate director of PR firm Kratos Communications, and he said that Clark's appointment could see attention return to devolution of power because of his previous work on combined authorities and city deals. Roger Hefer, executive director at HGH Consulting, said Greg Clark was a very good appointment, describing him as pragmatic, thoughtful, and sensible. And he added, he was also encouraged to see Jones's statement on his own website, the housing minister, saying that he was not anti-development, which suggested to him that he may be a pragmatist. Okay, suggested to Heifer that, that, that Jones may be a pragmatist. Yes, correct. Okay, and, and what do we know about Marcus Jones's views on planning? Jones is a former council leader and uh, who as MP criticised his local authority for delays to its local plan. He defended the government's controversial expansion of permitted development rights and described himself, as I mentioned earlier, as not anti-development. And he's already worked alongside Clark between 2015 and 2016, having served as a minister for local government in the department, formerly known as the Department for Community and Local Government. Okay, so we've got a new Secretary of State and a new minister with a um, track record in, in planning and, a, and what's more, a track record of um, being in, in, in government in the, in the relevant department. I suspect a lot of people in the sector, whatever they felt about Michael Gove and some of his specific policies, there will be uh, some people out there who will regret that a Secretary of State with a track record of being able to make change hasn't had the opportunity to see through his programme of change. But there is obviously something quite unique about having a new Secretary of State who had previously been in the role seven or eight years ago because it means that the architect of a lot of the present planning system, which is what Greg Clark is, he was, he was the person behind the, um, the first NPPF, is getting a chance to kind of review what's worked and what hasn't worked, or, or potentially could have the chance to review what, what, what's worked and what hasn't worked. And that's a very rare thing for somebody to, uh, to be in charge of the uh, government department, which sets planning policy, and firstly, have the knowledge, which comes with having done the job previously, and secondly have the opportunity to kind of fine-tune what the work they did many years ago. So potentially that could be very interesting. But 
I understand, I think, from some of the things you've, you've said to me, Chris, that there's um, quite a lot of scepticism about how long-term either of these appointments are. Well, yes. If you're looking at putting someone in place for the short term and someone who doesn't need to sort of leave a legacy, just employ somebody who already has one, who already was at this sort of start of a lot of the planning legislation that's in place now. A lot of the commentators are saying that they expect continuity in the short term with no new initiatives to be introduced. And essentially that if something's in the pipeworks, then it will go through. Marcus Jones announced that the NPPF prospectus will be published. And this was originally expected in summer. And that's what they're still saying. Although when pressed, the department is only saying soon. Um, Jones said this summer and the department said soon. And the levelling up bill will continue as it's largely uncontroversial within the Conservative Party. This is from Chris Rumfit. But the question is whether the new prime minister reopens some of the bigger questions around planning reform, home ownership and the like. He certainly thinks this is possible. Uh, and the bill does provide the new prime minister with legislative vehicles to make further changes via amendments. And as mentioned earlier, Marcus Jones also confirmed that the government intends to push ahead with the publication of a new national planning policy framework prospectus this summer, which would provide more details on the government's proposed suite of national development management policies. He addressed the Commons debate on the levelling up and regeneration bill on Tuesday, the 12th of July. Okay. But at least the minister has said this summer, which um, in ministerial speak normally means any time up until the 1st of October. I think. Yeah. So how about in the longer term? If, you know, in the maybe unlikely event, um, although some may be hoping for continuity, but in the maybe unlikely event of Clark and Jones uh, being around for the long term, what implications might that have? Well, I saw something interesting on Twitter. Neighbourhood planning consultant Tony Burton said that amidst the turmoil, it was a pleasure to see the originator of neighbourhood planning, Greg Clark, back in post leading future planning and neighbourhood governments reforms. And he added that he was looking forward to seeing more of the promised power shift to communities. So Martin Curtis, associate director at Creators Communications, also raises the possibility that Clark's appointment could see attention return to devolution of power because of his previous work on combined authorities and city deals. Curtis said he was very happy about Clark's appointment and that he suspects Clark will want to put his own spin on the government's proposed planning reforms. Beyond where this goes uh, is a question mark over whether the pair will survive the impending arrival of a new prime minister. And I guess that brings us up nicely to Sunak and Truss. Indeed. Thank you very much for that, Chris. And uh, Toby, this is something that you've been looking at, um, what Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss have been saying about planning in their pitches for the Tory leadership. How much have they been saying? And, and, and what do we know, for instance, about Rishi Sunak's views on planning? Well, Sunak's actually made very few public comments specifically on planning issues. He has talked about the consent for the number of homes being a challenge. He said there were a decent amount of brownfield land and the government had moved to increase the number of developments there and highlighted the need for urban densification, saying cities are much less dense than lots of other places in Europe and easier to build in. He's also flagged the work of self-build advocate Richard Bacon, MP, in promoting use of modular building. He's also suggested that more work was required from government to address land banking. That's developers uh, hanging on to plots which have permission, but they're not actually building on. 
So, you know, like I said, it would make sure that we have a system where large developers can't hog the land instead of being released for housing building. But having said that, trawl through stuff he's said during this campaign, there's not a huge amount of it. Liz Truss has said more. Sunak has, though, said that he will not allow the repeal of prohibitions on wind power on land. In other words, he's fine with wind farms at sea, but he wants to stop them happening on land. And he said he's not going to support any kind of uh, loosening of restrictions of... Uh, exactly. Of he said he's not going to support any loosening of the restrictions on wind power on land. Yeah, it was it was interesting to, um, to see Sunak saying that about onshore wind power, uh, particularly as it was came out almost at the same time as the government reiterated its commitment to creating a new mechanism for communities to express their interest in um, allowing new wind power schemes in their areas. I guess on one level, Sunak is making it sound as if he's going to stop a, a drift to onshore wind development, which actually there's nothing in government policy which really suggests that uh, uh, that, that is going to happen. But whether that means that he's actually going to halt this government plan to enable communities to kind of pitch for wind power schemes in their areas is another matter. I, I guess what he said wouldn't, wouldn't commit him to, um, to stopping that. And otherwise, I guess, you know, as you say, Toby, not masses in, um, in what he said about planning. It seems to be a, a sort of well-worn theme for virtually everybody who is involved in this contest at any stage to claim that there was a lot more capacity for development in urban areas and uh, that's where the focus should be. Obviously, the concern, I think, for most people in the planning sector will be that however efficient one is about finding capacity in existing urban areas, there still needs to be significant amounts of uh, of greenfield development to meet housing need and none of or very few of the... um, of the candidates seem to be talking about how that difficult bit, how that controversial bit of meeting housing demand is addressed. Okay, um, so what about Liz Truss? What, what has she been saying? So we've got two sources of information from Liz Truss about her policies. One was a column in the Sunday Telegraph this weekend, and the second was the debate with Sunak on Monday night. So starting with the Sunday Telegraph, She said she would amend the levelling up and regeneration bill to replace centralised targets with tax cuts. She referred to centralised targets as something she wants to abolish top-down, Whitehall-inspired Stalinist targets. Her words were, I think it's the wrong way to generate economic growth. Instead, she wants to create reduced red tape opportunity zones to make it easier and quicker for developers to build on brownfield sites. She also suggested she would end the government's moratorium on fracking, saying that it should be allowed in parts of the country where it had local consent. Um, speaking on during one hustings, she said she believed that one of the problems around housing is that we've taken a one-size-fits-all policy approach to housing, and we need different policies in different parts of the country. For example, the situation in Cornwall is very, very different to London, and that's very, very different to the north of England or Scotland. 
Truss said she believed that in cities we should be building up more and make more of the space we have, presumably focusing on brownfield sites. While in the countryside, where there tends to be more of a sort of NIMBY attitude development, she was a supporter of allowing incremental expansion of villages rather than massive targets that land on the back of local councils. She also spoke in favour of delivering supporting infrastructure for new homes rather than just having housing estates plonked in the middle of nowhere with no discernible facilities or infrastructure to support them. To avoid another planning war, she said, which is the last thing Conservative Party needs in the suburbs or in the country, it will, she said, very, very important that we have policies that command local consent, that local people can support because they know that it's going to help their children. Okay, so uh, quite a few interesting points there, I think. Um, I mean, one point that I'm sure will occur to a lot of our audience is talking about housing targets as a sort of Stalinist production target, like you know, producing a certain number of tractors, in that it's an ineffective way of stimulating the economy. It seems like a sort of misunderstanding of the purpose of figures that express the housing need for certain areas because they're not there purely as a goal for economic growth, although they may have an important function in economic growth. They're there to express how much housing is needed across the country as a whole and to try and make sure that each area is at least meeting its own housing need within the constraints it faces. So it does seem uh, sort of to misunderstand the purpose of housing targets. That said, I suppose there will be some um, glimmers of encouragement for planners to hear one of the leadership contenders talk about things like the need for supporting infrastructure, um, which is a continued theme from the um, Johnson era, and the importance of uh, of policies um, commanding local consent. But you know, she also touched on planning in the um, in the TV BBC TV debate with um, Rishi Sunak last night. She did, and she told the audience she wants to introduce new low tax areas to drive growth, which would also benefit from reduced planning regulations, including relaxed rules, planning rules. She wants to have the zones to encourage the construction of new model villages like Victorian era creations like Bourneville near Birmingham and Saltaire in Bradford. And during the debate last night, in response to a question about the government's levelling up, up agenda, she said, we need to get spades in the ground. Her words were, I will put in new low-tax investment zones with simplified planning so that we can get on with building. People want things to happen urgently. Going back to the Telegraph piece, which puts a little bit of flesh on those particular bones. She said, these zones would be the heart of my vision for levelling up, adding, we will work with local communities to identify sites ripe for transformation across the country through lower taxes, reduced planning restrictions and red tape. These zones would open the floodgates to new waves of investment, she said. They will become new hubs for innovation and enterprise in the spirit of historic towns like Bourneville and Saltaire. And she goes on, by creating these new investment zones, we'll finally prove to businesses we're committed to their futures and incentivize them to stimulate the investment that will help deliver for hardworking people. 
This is what she said in the column. My investment zones will rejuvenate local areas in the same way London Docklands was regenerated. I think she's taken this almost as a, an, a, as a model. She's focused on free ports, the new generation of which she introduced as Trade Secretary in 2019, which the government has suggested could offer liberalised planning regimes as well. In her column, she went further to say, we will go further to galvanise investment by strengthening current free ports. We will liberate free ports to maximise our opportunity post-Brexit to lead the world in key industries such as AI, quantum and hydrogen power. These full-fat free ports will be world-class engines of growth. Okay, so it's a bit sort of Boris-style full-fat free ports. They're trying to sort of... um... It's got a slight sort of boosterism sort of type phrases. Okay, so as you say, it's interesting that she was behind, as Trade Secretary, she was behind the new generation of free ports. And you, you think she's kind of now trying to apply the, the same model to, to inland areas as a way of encouraging not only economic growth, but housing growth? Yes. So Conservatives have a little problem with housing because their constituents, their parish councils, don't really want houses on rural areas they represent. The urban areas, unless it's shopping centres being turned into housing or city centres being turned into housing, there's not much space for housing in inner city areas where Tories don't historically have huge support. So by focusing on reducing red tape in concentrated brownfield possibly urban areas, they might be able to get around that problem. It's sort of joining the dots between existing policies, but also marrying that up with low tax and uh, low red tape policy. So the investment zones is a clever way of tying those ideas together. Okay. I can certainly see how it's trying to apply the sort of Freeport style model to um, incentivize development in other places. I think it does raise a lot of questions, though, because I think, firstly, we recently did a bit of a sort of in-depth article on what's happened so far with uh, with the free ports, and there are eight of them in England. And although there's been quite a lot of progress towards turning them all into places with lighter tax regimes, the idea that they were going to be significantly different in planning terms to other parts of the country you know, not a lot of has happened on that so far. Freeports have, like all other ports in the last couple of years, been given an increase in permitted development rights to uh, make them equivalent to uh, to airports when dealing with development that's sort of urgently needed for the operation of the um, of the facility. But I, well, in other respects, not a lot has been done to make any of those areas significantly different in, in planning terms to um, to the rest of the country. So, you know, the question is, what planning regulations would she consider removing in other places? And um, if, like Freeports, actually it's not going to be the planning that's the major attraction of these schemes, it's the low-tax environment, well, is the difficulty with with delivering the amount of housing needed to do with a lack of tax incentives for builders, or is it to do with a difficulty in getting planning permission? And, and, and many house builders would say that the difficulty of getting planning permission in the, in the right places is the bigger difficulty. 
So I think there are um, some questions about those elements of, of Liz Truss's policy. I guess what some people will take some encouragement from is the way in which she is trying to cast new settlements and new towns in a slightly positive light. So I think she probably feels that when she talks about things like Bourneville and um, and Saltaire, that's a way of sort of pitching new urban development to her constituency of uh, Tory members in a way that's going to be more appealing to them than talking about the sort of post-war new towns, which are obviously very well, very associated with Labour. So there may be some encouragement there, I think, for... Well, you know, I suppose people who are involved in developing big urban extensions or, or new communities may, may see some encouragement in that. The reason they're not being built could be several things. It may be developers sitting on land that they have permissions for, but they want to keep up prices by keeping sales scarce. The problem for the current situation is that the permissions that are there are for two and three bedroom houses rather than for one and five bedroom houses. The very small and the very big or the affordable homes for that matter. So if the trust thrust is to try and generate more building work, then incentives might be the best way to go rather than uh, punishing developers who don't build their planning applications. Okay. Well, that's, that's, that's uh, yeah, yeah, it's an interesting view. And, um, it's interesting that both um, she and um, Rishi Sunak, in, in different ways, seem to be talking about maintaining this this focus that the government has had for a while on how can more of these permissions be turned into bricks and mortar. Although it's been a sort of hot topic in government um, for a long time, without an enormous amount of action being taken. Although um, although there are some measures in the levelling up bill that are intended to do that. So it'd be interesting to see whether those would be taken forward as well under a new leader. Okay, well, thank you very much, Toby. Thank you very much, Chris. I think our work is done um, in this sort of non-standard Room 106 that we've had this week. Let's get out before there are any more announcements, decisions or change of leadership. Great. Well, that's another few weeks summarised. Yes, we'll be back in two weeks to give you another update on the key things happening in the sector. In the meantime, don't forget to subscribe wherever you normally get your podcasts. And to get a daily bulletin of planning news, plus weekly analysis, specialist bulletins, subscribe at planningresource.co.uk. Our thanks to producer Daisy Chaku from Rethink, and thanks for listening. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.